Welcome to ReachMD. This medical industry feature titled, Decision Points in the Treatment of Patients with More Progressed RMS and Active SPMS, is sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and the presenters have been compensated for their time. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Barry Singer, Director of the MS Center for Innovations and Care at Missouri Baptist Medical Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Ann Bass, MS Clinic Medical Director at the Neurology Center of San Antonio in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you so much, Dr. Singer. Glad to be here with you today. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Bass. On today's program, we'll be discussing decision points in managing patients with relapsing MS that are developing worsening disability. This includes patients who are progressively worsening, but still have relapses or new MRI activity called active secondary progressive MS or active SPMS. We'll learn about Mason, saponamide, the first and only oral disease modifying therapy studied and proven to delay disability progression in patients with active SPMS. Dr. Bass and I will also be sharing our real world experiences of starting patients on Mason. Let's get right into it. As many of us know, MS is a chronic inflammatory and neurodegenerative disease with a highly variable clinical course. Most patients who have relapsing remitting MS will eventually transition to a secondary progressive course, what we call secondary progressive MS or SPMS. In SPMS, disability slowly increases over time. For example, patients may experience slowly worsening leg weakness or balance problems. When this transition occurs to SPMS, there is a shift from predominantly inflammatory disease activity towards more neurodegenerative processes. So Barry, how would you determine if your patient has relapsing MS that is progressing or active SPMS? First of all, it's important to determine that that patient had relapsing remitting disease earlier in their MS course. Next, it's important to look for early signs of progressive disability worsening, such as gait or cognitive impairment. If that patient has transitioned to the progressive phase of the disease and is still having relapses or new MRI activity, then active SPMS is the appropriate diagnosis. Barry, that reminds me of one of my patients. He was a young man with about a 10-year history of MS, which was diagnosed when he was about 18 years old. He had both high disease burden and activity in the earlier years after his diagnosis and had been on a disease-modifying therapy and responded well. However, in a recent follow-up with him, his MRI actually showed a new T2 lesion. And more importantly, I noted a few key signs of progression on his examination. For example, he mentioned having to use a cane for walking longer distances, whereas before he didn't have any assistive devices at all. I also noted that his prior EDSS score was about 4.0, and now he had bumped up to 6.0. And in terms of cognitive function, he and his family reported him having more difficulty concentrating and multitasking at home and at work. So it's interesting because these signs were not necessarily a concern to be an actual overt clinical relapse, but certainly this patient was progressing. Dr. Bass, thanks so much for sharing your insights on your patient. That brings us to our first key decision point. Dr. Bass, how do you determine when your patient has started down a progressive pathway when you see them in your office? You are right. Timely identification of progression is key, especially when progression can manifest itself in a very subtle way, such as worsening physical or cognitive function. 
Specifically in my practice, I perform an MS disability assessments about every 12 months and even every six months for patients with more active disease. My assessment includes the simple digit modality test known as SDMT, time 25 foot walk, and EDSS. And then beyond these objective measures, it is also important to take a thorough and extensive history focusing on changes over time. So for example, I will ask my patient, how are you different this year compared to last year? I call it my litmus test of life, knowing how they're functioning on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes the patient will tell me things like, well, I used to do two flights of stairs and now I can only do one. I'm just so amazed that when these conversations with my patient come up about their daily life, it can really uncover those subtle signs and symptoms of progression. With that, I'd like to pose this next decision point. Where do we go from here? Do we continue monitoring for changes, Dr. Bass, or do we take action? So for a patient with progressing forms of relapsing MS or active SPMS, as we all know, we cannot reverse progression and our central nervous system does have a finite capacity to compensate. I totally agree with that. But for our patients with relapsing MS who are showing first signs of progression, it's vital to stay ahead of the disease. And I think it's a perfect place for us to talk about Mazin, which is the first and only oral disease-modifying therapy studied and proven to delay disability progression in patients with active SPMS. Mazin is a once-daily oral pill is a sphingosine 1-phosphate or S1P receptor modulator. It targets S1P1 and S1P5, two key receptors thought to play a role in relapsing MS, inflammation, and neurodegeneration. However, the exact mechanism by which mesin exerts its therapeutic effects on MS is unknown. Before we talk about the data behind this medication, we should hear about the indication and important safety information for mesin. Indication. Mazin, siponimod is indicated for the treatment of relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis, MS, to include clinically isolated syndrome, relapsing remitting disease, and active secondary progressive disease in adults. Important safety information. Contraindications. Patients with a CYP2C9 star 3 star 3 genotype in the last six months experienced myocardial infarction, unstable angina, stroke, TIA, decompensated heart failure requiring hospitalization, or class 3-4 heart failure. Presence of Mobitz type 2 second degree, third degree atrioventricular block, or sick sinus syndrome, unless patient has a functioning pacemaker. Please note additional important safety information provided throughout this podcast. Full prescribing information, including medication guide, is available at mazandhcp.com. So Dr. Singer, what about Mazand makes it appropriate for patients with more progressed relapsing MS, including those with active SPMS? Great question. So I think one of the key factors is the patient population studied in the Mason clinical trial expand. The study enrolled 1,651 patients with confirmed diagnosis of SPMS and is the largest phase three study of patients with SPMS to date. The mean age of patients in the Mason arm of expand was 48 years old and ranged from 21 to 61 years of age. 78% of the patients were previously treated with a disease-modifying therapy and have been living with an MS diagnosis for 13 years on average. The trial included a subset of patients with inflammatory activity. 21% of patients had gadolinium-enhanced lesions at baseline, and 36% had at least one relapse within two years prior to study entry. 
Patients in the trial represented a broad range of disability with EDSS scores ranging from 3 to 6.5 with an average of 5.4. And 56% of patients needed assistance to ambulate. So Barry, it sounds like EXPAND is a unique trial in terms of patient population because it studied more progressed relapsing MS patients. In fact, as one of the principal investigators in the EXPAND trial, I know there are clinical sites. We took a lot of care in identifying this particular population. We ensure that patients fulfill criteria for progression with documented changes in EDSS in the two years before the study. And many of our patients were clearly in the higher range of EDSS with a mean score of 5.4. So in my practice, we see many patients with progressed relapsing MS with a broad range of disability, inflammatory activity, and recent signs of progression. I agree as well. And that brings us to our next decision point, determining which data are most relevant when we consider a treatment for our patients. To me, proven efficacy in delaying disability progression is certainly one of the most important factors to consider when choosing a disease-modifying therapy for patients with more progressed relapsing MS and active SPMS. Well, Anne, in the EXPAND clinical trial, Mason was studied across a broad range of endpoints, and many of them reflect measures of disease progression or worsening, in addition to measures of relapse and or inflammatory activity. The Mason group, which included 1,099 patients, experienced a relative risk reduction of 21% in three-month confirmed disability progression compared to the placebo group, which included 546 patients. Although Mason had a significant effect on confirmed disability progression in patients with active SPMS, its effect in patients with non-active SPMS was not statistically significant. Active SPMS was defined as the presence of relapses in the two years prior to screening and or at least one T1 gadolinium enhancing lesion at baseline. In a post-hoc analysis of the active SPMS subgroup of the EXPAND trial, the Mason group, which included 519 patients with active SPMS, experienced a relative risk reduction of 31% and three-month confirmed disability progression compared to the placebo group, which included 263 patients with active SPMS. Note that this analysis has not been adjusted for multiple comparisons and no conclusions of statistical or clinical significance can be drawn. Key secondary endpoints in the EXPAND clinical trial included evaluation of time 25-foot walk and the change in total T2 lesion volume compared to baseline. In the time 25-foot walk test, Mason did not significantly delay the time to 20% deterioration compared to placebo. However, treatment with Mason decreased the change in volume of T2 lesions from baseline compared to placebo. And expand a pre-specified hierarchical analysis consisted of the primary endpoint and the two key secondary endpoints. The key secondary endpoints of time 25-foot walk was not significant. Therefore, the key secondary endpoint of T2 lesion volume was considered nominal. The remaining endpoints were not corrected for multiple comparisons. So Barry, what can you tell me about the safety profile of Mayland? So in an EXPAND trial, the most common adverse reactions with Mason that occurred in at least 10% of patients were headaches at 15%, hypertension 13%, and transaminase increases 11%. It's important to note that the EXPAND open-label extension study is ongoing. Thank you so much, Dr. Singer, for your review of the Mason data. Excellent, Dr. Bass. Let's also take a moment to review some additional important safety information for Mason. Infections. 
Mazent may increase risk of infections with some that are serious in nature. Life-threatening and rare fatal infections have occurred. Before starting Mazent, review a recent complete blood count, CBC, i.e. within six months or after discontinuation of prior therapy. Delay initiation of treatment in patients with severe active infections until resolved. Employ effective treatments and monitor patients with symptoms of infection while on therapy. Consider discontinuing treatment if patient develops a serious infection. Cases of fatal cryptococcal meningitis, CM, were reported in patients treated with another sphingosine 1-phosphate, S1P, receptor modulator. Rare cases of CM have occurred with Mazent. If CM is suspected, Mazent should be suspended until cryptococcal infection has been excluded. If CM is diagnosed, appropriate treatment should be initiated. No cases of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML, were reported in Mazent clinical trials. However, they have been observed in patients treated with another S1P receptor modulator and other multiple sclerosis, MS therapies. If PML is suspected, Mazent should be discontinued. Cases of herpes viral infection, including one case of reactivation of varicella zoster virus leading to varicella zoster meningitis, have been reported. Patients without a confirmed history of varicella zoster virus, VZV, or without vaccination should be tested for antibodies before starting Mazent. If VZV antibodies are not present or detected, then VZV immunization is recommended and Mazent should be initiated four weeks after vaccination. Use of live vaccines should be avoided while taking Mazent and for four weeks after stopping treatment. Caution should be used when combining treatment, i.e. antineoplastic, immune modulating, or immunosuppressive therapies due to additive immune system effects. Macular edema. In most cases, macular edema occurred within four months of therapy. Patients with history of uveitis or diabetes are at an increased risk. Before starting treatment, an ophthalmic evaluation of the fundus, including the macula, is recommended and at any time if there is a change in vision. The use of mazen in patients with macular edema has not been evaluated. The potential risks and benefits to the individual patient should be considered. Bradyarrhythmia and atrioventricular conduction delays. Prior to initiation of mazent, an ECG should be obtained to determine if pre-existing cardiac conduction abnormalities are present. In all patients, a dose titration is recommended for initiation of mazent treatment to help reduce cardiac effects. Mazent was not studied in patients who had, in the last six months, experienced myocardial infarction, unstable angina, stroke, TIA, or decompensated heart failure requiring hospitalization. New York Heart Association Class 2 through 4 Heart Failure Cardiac conduction or rhythm disorders, including complete left bundle branch block, sinus arrest, or sinoatrial block, symptomatic bradycardia, sick sinus syndrome, Mobitz type 2 second degree AV block, or higher grade AV block, either history or observed at screening, unless patient has a functioning pacemaker. Significant QT prolongation, QTC greater than 500 milliseconds. Arrhythmias requiring treatment with class 1A or class 3 antiarrhythmic drugs. Reinitiation of treatment, initial dose titration, monitoring effects on heart rate and AV conduction, i.e. ECG, should apply if greater than or equal to four consecutive daily doses are missed. Please see additional important safety information throughout this podcast and full prescribing information, including the medication guide at mazenhcp.com. Now, let's turn to our last decision point. How do we start patients on Mazen, Dr. Bass? Mazen can be started in two steps, assessment and initiation. And there's also a dedicated patient support program called Alongside Mazant to support patients starting Mazant. In step one assessment, my patient undergo blood work, including a complete blood count or CBC. 
a varicella zoster virus or VCV antibody titer test, a liver function test, and a Novartis-sponsored CYP2C9 genotype test. It's worth mentioning that this genotype test is similar to most routine lab work. It helps to ensure that Mazan is precisely dosed to fit your patient's distinct metabolism. With genotype testing, we know that we're prescribing the most appropriate dose for each patient. In addition, patients undergo medical exams such as an ophthalmic and cardiac evaluation. It's also important to note that first-dose observation is required only for patients with certain pre-existing cardiac condition. And since the launch of Mazan, a first-dose observation was required for approximately 15% of patients as of March 2021. Hey, Dr. Bass, you mentioned uh, VZV antibody titer test. In my own practice, if the result is negative, I perform a full vaccination against VZV. I do this four weeks before starting Mazan therapy. Also, many of my patients take other medications, so it's important to consider potential drug-to-drug interactions prior to starting Mazan. Definitely check the prescriber information for details. Well said, Barry. And that leads us to step two, which is initiating therapy. For this, we have a tailored titration schedule based on genotype test results to ensure that patients safely reach their appropriate maintenance dose. So where does the alongside Mazan program fit into all of this? So for my patient, alongside Mazin has enabled these blood tests and medical exams to be conducted in the comfort of their own homes, at my office, or at a nearby medical facility. My patients have been able to take care of their assessment in just one or two visits. Also, alongside Mazin helped coordinate any assessments or medical exams unavailable at my practice. In my experience, the results of these assessments come very quickly which allow appropriate patients to start Mazan therapy immediately once assessments are completed. The alongside Mazan program also provides dedicated in-office access and reimbursement support. Eligible patient enrolled in alongside Mazan also receive a welcome kit. My patients have voiced their experiences with the Mazan welcome kit, which provides a clear method to share information with caretakers. Anytime patients can better understand and involve their support network in their care is very helpful. Patient will also receive the help of a dedicated coordinator who can walk them through initiating treatment step-by-step. Our patients have found the program to be very helpful. We even noticed a reduction in the number of patient calls asking for clarification. So Dr. Bass, what advice can you offer our listeners to help ensure their patients are initiating amazing therapy quickly and seamlessly? Well, I can offer three tips. The first is to check for program assistance for any assessments that are not available at your practice. Next, engage early and often with alongside Mazand and pharmacies for insurance support. And lastly, Prepare your patient to anticipate program outreach, such as phone calls. Thank you for that advice, Dr. Bass. With that said, let's take a final look at additional Mazent important safety information. Respiratory effects. Mazent may cause a decline in pulmonary function. Spirometric evaluation of respiratory function should be performed during therapy if clinically warranted. Liver injury. Elevation of transaminases may occur in patients taking Mazent. Before starting treatment, obtain liver transaminase and bilirubin levels. Closely monitor patients with severe hepatic impairment. Patients who develop symptoms suggestive of hepatic dysfunction should have liver enzymes checked, and mazid should be discontinued if significant liver injury is confirmed.
Cutaneous malignancies. The risk of cutaneous malignancies, including basal cell carcinoma, BCC, squamous cell carcinoma, SCC, and melanoma, is increased in patients treated with S1P modulators. Use of mason has been associated with an increased risk of BCC and SCC. Cases of other cutaneous malignancies, including melanoma, have also been reported in patients treated with mason and in patients treated with another S1P modulator. Skin examinations are recommended at the start of treatment and periodically thereafter for all patients. Monitor for suspicious skin lesions and promptly evaluate any that are observed. Exposure to sunlight and ultraviolet light should be limited by wearing protective clothing and using a sunscreen with high protection factor. Concomitant phototherapy with UVB radiation or PUVA photochemotherapy is not recommended. Increased blood pressure. Increase in systolic and diastolic pressure was observed about one month after initiation of treatment and persisted with continued treatment. During therapy, blood pressure should be monitored and managed appropriately. Fetal risk. Based on animal studies, mazent may cause fetal harm. Women of childbearing potential should use effective contraception to avoid pregnancy during and for 10 days after stopping mazent therapy. There is a pregnancy exposure registry that monitors pregnancy outcomes in women exposed to mazent during pregnancy. Healthcare providers are encouraged to enroll pregnant patients, or pregnant women may register themselves, in the Mother to Baby Pregnancy Study in Multiple Sclerosis by calling 1 877 311 8972, sending an email to mother to baby at health.ucsd.edu, or visiting www.mothertobaby.org slash join study. Posterior Reversible Encephalopathy Syndrome, Press. Rare cases of PRESS have been reported in patients receiving an S1P receptor modulator. Such events have not been reported for patients treated with mason in clinical trials. If patients develop any unexpected neurological or psychiatric symptoms, a prompt evaluation should be considered. If PRESS is suspected, mason should be discontinued. Unintended additive immunosuppressive effects from prior treatment or after stopping mason. When switching from drugs with prolonged immune effects, the half-life and mode of action of these drugs must be considered to avoid unintended additive immunosuppressive effects. Initiating treatment with mazent after treatment with alimtuzumab is not recommended. After stopping mazent therapy, sipanimod remains in the blood for up to 10 days. Starting other therapies during this interval will result in concomitant exposure to sipanimod. Lymphocyte counts return to the normal range in 90% of patients within 10 days of stopping therapy. However, residual pharmacodynamic effects, such as lowering effects on peripheral lymphocyte count, may persist for up to three to four weeks after the last dose. Use of immunosuppressants within this period may lead to an additive effect on the immune system, and therefore, caution should be applied three to four weeks after the last dose of mazent. Severe increase in disability after stopping mazent. Severe exacerbation of disease, including disease rebound, has been rarely reported after discontinuation of an S1P receptor modulator. The possibility of severe exacerbation of disease should be considered after stopping mazent treatment. Thus, patients should be monitored upon discontinuation. Most common adverse reactions. Most common adverse reactions, greater than 10%, are headache, hypertension, and transaminase increases. Please see additional important safety information throughout this podcast and full prescribing information, including the medication guide at mazentdcp.com. Dr. Bass, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I'd love for you to recap what we've learned. Thank you so much, Dr. Singer. I would be happy to sum up today's talk by saying that there are key junctures where we as healthcare professionals 
need to make management decision regarding our more progressed patients with relapsing MS, including those with active SPMS, at the first signs of progression. First, when we follow up with our patients with relapsing MS or active SPMS, we should actively monitor for subtle signs of progression. And when we do see signs of progression, we should help patients stay ahead of it instead of waiting for the disease to potentially worsen. When deciding on a disease-modifying therapy, we should choose a therapy based on evidence relevant to this specific patient population. I will note here that Mazant is the first and only oral disease-modifying therapy studied and proven to delay disability progression in a more progressed relapsing MS patient population, including those with active SPMS. Lastly, with the evidence from the EXPAND trial, Mazan may be an appropriate option for patients with progressing RMS, including those with active SPMS. And with the alongside Mazan program, we know patients will have support along the way. Superb, Dr. Bass. That was a great summary on the key points in the management of our patients with relapsing MS who are showing signs of progression, including those with active SPMS. This concludes our program for today. Thank you again so much for listening. This program was sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit reachmd.com slash industry feature. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.